0: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello, Richard. This is Jonathan Master. Hey, Jonathan. How are you? Doing okay. Good, good. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master. I am executive editor of an online journal for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals called Placefortruth.org, which I'd urge you to visit. For today's episode of Theology on the Go, we're continuing our study of the doctrine of God. And for part three, we're delighted to welcome Richard Barcellus to speak about God's impassibility. Now, he serves as pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale, California, And he's written and edited a number of different books on various topics. The one I'd like to highlight, though, since it connects with our topic today, is Confessing the Impassible God, which he co-edited with a number of others. And so, uh, Richard, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about God's impassibility. Thanks for having me. All right, let's just start with basic definitions. What does it mean to say that God is impassible?
1: Well, of course, that's the, the best question to start with. Um, the term impassible comes from, as far as I know, a Latin term, pati, which means to suffer, to submit, or to undergo as, as in a happening to. And all of these imply some some sort of change, which is impossible with God, since he's immutable. And this brief definition entails that there are no unfolding emotive experiences to which God finds himself the subject. He is both immutable and eternal. As immutable and eternal, he does not experience temporal succession of life. Um, in the in the confession, the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, and the Second London Confession, the sixteen eighty nine, um, the statement is without body parts or passions. It's interesting that all three of these these are negations. In other words, what God is not God does not have a body. God does not have parts. God does not have or experience passions. And it's obvious that without body refers to the fact that God is not corporeal. He doesn't extend into space. And without parts, we've already covered divine simplicity, um, but without parts refers to the fact that God is not composed of things, either divine things or created things, because either way, composition implies a composer, which would make the composer prior to that which is composed or prior to God. Creatures, though, have parts of which they're composed. God is simple. And then the, the last one, without passions, that's the one we're discussing, refers to the fact that God is not subject to being acted upon either from within or from without. Passions, as with body and parts, are creaturely things. You know, in one sense, I think we could take this triad of negations without body parts and passions. And we could reduce it to this, God is not a man, God is not creature. You know, men have bodies, men have parts, men have passions, God has neither, he just is. And each of these terms, body, parts, and passions, are indicative of creatures, not the eternal creator. So passions are creaturely actions, which need a creaturely body and creaturely parts, or the technical term is the faculties of the soul, in order for them to exist. So passions are things that come into being, but God is. And since God is without body and parts of which he is composed, comprised or compounded, and due to divine immutability and eternity, God is therefore impassable. He is without passions. So that's my brief definition.
0: No, that that's helpful and I appreciate how you connected those with the other two and tied it all into to him not being a creature, not being a created thing. And that really touches on the next question I wanted to ask you, which is uh, and I, and I think you've you've already answered it, but maybe you want to expand on a little bit more. Why is this doctrine of impassibility an important or even a, a necessary Doctrine. We'll talk in a minute about some of the biblical objections or biblical questions people raise about it. But but I want to start by saying, why, why is this so significant for us to affirm? I know you've spent a lot of work writing and encouraging people to affirm this. Why is it important?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's both important and necessary. It's important because I think it's the teaching of Scripture. And obviously, it's also been confessed as the teaching of Scripture— by those who've reflected on Scripture since the Patristics through the Middle Ages, by the Reformers, and by those in the post-Reformation confessional era. In, in that sense, it's a, it's a Catholic confession. But it's necessary for several reasons. Obviously, the, the first and most important was is that it's scriptural. It's an entailment, or it's a necessary consequent of divine immutability. We, we could put it this way. If God is immutable, God is impassable. God is immutable, therefore God is impassable. Or if divine immutability, then divine impassibility. Divine immutability, therefore divine impassibility. Um, I'm sounding a little like Turton here.
0: But no, no, that's, <laughs> uh, we, we like that. We, that's, that's actually
1: okay. I love Turton's statement uh, where he says, We distinguish. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. But not only is it scriptural, it also upholds other scriptural teachings. It upholds the creator creature distinction that's so necessary to maintain an orthodox doctrine of God. Uh, You know, God is not a perfect rendition of man. He's not creature. There's a distinction of being. God is a divine being. Creatures or man are a creature that created, derived. They derive their being from God. Also, this doctrine reflects the fact of the plenitude or the fullness and perfection of divine being. Older writers spoke that way of the divine perfection. I I think we need to speak that way as well in our day. If God is divine plenitude, fullness, and perfection, he can't undergo anything either for the better or for the worse. So if, if God acquires states of being or character traits or qualities then whatever those are they're something not eternal because they're acquired and therefore not of the essence of God but it is of the essence of God to be eternal divine perfection cannot be perfected or diminished or altered in any sense so it's scriptural it, it upholds the creator-creature distinction it reflects the fact of divine plenitude and perfection, and it also protects the doctrine of divine actuality, or the fact that God is pure act, which is crucial to maintaining an orthodox theology proper. God is all that He is, always has been and always will be. He's not in a state of potentiality, where He can become today what He was not yesterday. He cannot become more or less God. In other words, God is not in a perpetual state of potentiality like we are. The divine inner life is fully realized. He adds no new properties or character traits. If he did, these would not be of the essence of God, and they would be what we call accidental. Uh, an accidental property is something added to an essence, without which the essence is itself. But when added to the essence the essence is qualified or obtains a characteristic not of its essence Uh, accidental properties are true of creatures for example a man with uh, let's say red hair has both essence humanity and accident red hair his red hair could change to silver or gray and yet not affect his essence he would still be in essence man created in the image of god so accidental properties are temporal additions or subtractions. You know, men can go bald and these are true of creatures and they're impossible with God. So I I think impassibility is both important and necessary for at least those, those four reasons.
0: Yeah. Now those are, that's a great outline of, of the way in which this fits into an overall doctrine of God. One of the things that, that I think strikes a lot of people when they get into this discussion is, uh, they, they, they've they asked, they ask the question, well, is this then just a, a philosophical assumption about God, you know, because, because of uh, what we uh, assume he must be, uh, therefore he can't have these accidental properties. In, in other words, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is this, is this something that we, draw directly from the Bible, I know you've said it is, but could you sort of detail out for us where we get it in the Bible? If I have my Bible, and let's say I'm not familiar with the creeds, am I going to arrive at the doctrine of impassibility, and if so, how?
1: Yeah, well, good question. It is a necessary entailment of divine immutability, so it's very scriptural. Though its explanation often utilizes uh, various philosophical terms, phrases, and concepts, but only as a handmaid to theological formulation. Now, some people struggle with that. But all disciplines of inquiry use technical terms and phrases and often borrow from other disciplines to help account for various aspects of the issue under discussion. So, I'll admit, it's it's a technical discussion at, at times, but it's a necessary entailment of divine immutability. And using technical terms and phrases is something uh, you experience when you go to your doctor. And then he uses the technical terms and then he explains what what they mean. So I think that's very important for us to do as well. But the most important uh, thing with reference to this um, is that it does come from the Bible. For instance, in Acts 14, verses 11 through 15, we read this, And when the multitude saw what Paul had done they lifted up their voice saying in the speech of Lyconia the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men and they called Barnabas Jupiter and and Paul Mercury because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Jupiter whose temple was before the city brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they rent their garments and sprang forth among the multitudes, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you and bring you good tidings that ye should turn from these vain things unto a living God. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, all that is, all that in them is? That's the uh, American standard version of 1901. My point here is that creatures have passions, and that was their, their argument. Yep. God does not. So it's it's a very scriptural doctrine, doctrine.
0: And then and then of course, building on what you've the point you've made a number of times through this conversation, any of the texts that talk about God not changing. Uh, would would also feed into this biblical doctrine of impassibility. If God doesn't change, therefore He's impassible. So that that's that I think uh, bear, bears repeating. But what about the passage? I want to press this a little bit more. What about the passages that describe God's anger or love or His mercy? You know, He was He was angry because of this, um, as a result of something done. It would appear. How do these fit? In with what you've described in terms of God being impassable? Well, let's uh, let's
1: consider love first. Uh, love in God is something He is. It's not something that ebbs and flows and grows and shrinks and comes and goes uh, as within creatures. God is love, 1 John 4. 8. But someone might be thinking that divine impassibility means that God is not love. At least as we know it. Now, part of that is true. God is not love as we know it in terms of our creaturely love. God is God. He's not a creature. He is not love as we know or experience it on the creaturely level. But it sounds as if God, with this doctrine of impassibility, were a cold and different divine rock or robot. You know, you've probably heard that before. Yep. Uh, But just notice the words I just used to describe God. Cold, indifferent, rock, and robot. Each of these are creaturely terms. They're borrowed from the created realm. Of course, God is not cold, indifferent, a rock, or a robot, because he is not creature. And by the way, when the Bible calls the Lord our rock, it's obviously a figure of speech, meaning divine stability and constancy. We're told in Scripture, though, that God is love. The love of God, then, is a divine perfection, therefore coextensive with the divine essence, and therefore eternal. It is not a divine passion, which I think is a contradiction. Love is what God is, actually, not what God can become, you know, potentially. Love is not a happening to in God. It's not a passion. He does not fall in love. Uh, when we fall in love new information comes to us it's processed through our parts our faculties and then somehow some way it's exhibited through our actions god can and god does reveal his love to creatures but he does not and cannot manufacture more love or deplete himself of previous love because if we could become more or less loving, for example, this would imply the imperfection of a previous state of existence. God's perfections are immutable, and neither is love, and some sort of abstract quality or character trait which God takes into Himself. That would make you know love's uh, an abstract entity, just kind of out there, and we'd have to ask where it came from. God is love. So impassibility, far from diminishing divine love, actually accentuates it as of the essence of divine being, and speaking like the older theologians, an overflowing fountain of eternal goodness. Now, you brought the issue of anger, divine anger. Let, let's just uh, I have one text from the King James Version, Psalm 711, which says this, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. So here in this one text, both judging and being angry are predicated of God. I think most would say that God judgeth the righteous refers to divine acts toward his people predicated upon His justice, which is of the essence of God and therefore eternal. This is a divine operation within the created realm, not a manufacturing of something new in God. It is not that God gains information concerning the righteous, then acts based on the new data. I think we can safely say this. Temporal blessings and temporal cursings upon man are due to changes in man, not changes in God. And the same goes for divine anger. New data about the wicked does not alter the divine essence or add accidents to the essence. Anger is a revelation of corrective divine justice within the realm of creation. Our anger, from the creaturely level, is a passion, a result of new information, which we perceive a wrong has been committed, to which we respond with hot displeasure, and it sometimes changes our facial gestures as well. Our anger can be either righteous or sinful. God's anger is a free and just operation of eternal justice in the context of a given circumstance within the created realm. I want to quote a friend of mine, Sam Renahan, says this, God's anger is his justice, a perfection, not an affection, a purposeful operation, not a passion. God is not man. And speaking of God's anger, this could well be an anthropopathism like God's repentance. You know, God was sorry or it repented the Lord that he made man. An an anthropopathism uh, occurs where when a creaturely passion is predicated of God analogically but not univocally. Now these are technical terms and Uh, I think some discussion needs to be made on them. A univocal statement means the same thing with reference to two or more beings. In other words, God's anger and man's is identically the same. Now, I don't think anybody wants to argue that. Hopefully they won't. But analogical predication, however, affirms a similarity between two different beings. There is a similar sense Proportionate to the mode of each being. So just as man's anger involves a sense of justice. Or the lack thereof. So God's is related to justice. Though according to divine being. Or proportionate to the mode of his being. With anthropopathisms. We must identify the analogy. Then we have to remove. All creaturely aspects from it To learn what is being predicated of God Um, And this gets into the three ways of knowing God It's going to be too much to discuss that You can do that with somebody else But I think it's, it's very important Sometimes when you read the older writers They'll say this is being predicated of God improperly Or this is being predicated of God properly Now those qualifying terms, improperly and properly, have a long history of use and meaning. When we say improperly, it's a figure of speech. So in order to get what's being properly predicated of God, which is of the essence of God, we have to remove all the creaturely aspects of it. And then we have to exalt, whatever this analogy is, into the realm of the divine. Uh, this is called the knowing God by by way of eminence, but uh, I'm not going to get into that specifically. So I, I think that's how we deal with yeah, with yeah the, anger and other things.
0: That, that's, that's, that's great, because because introducing this concept of anthropopathism as at least being part of the, the Christian's vocabulary and way of understanding the scriptures, I think is very helpful, particularly when it comes to things like repentance uh, which which we see uh, in in different places, and then, of course, we also have to take e- each text within its context. And sometimes there are there are nuances there that that yes. that help us. I I wanted to to ask one final question. You you've mentioned a couple of different sources, uh, and 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 you just recently quoted from your friend Sam Renahan, very fine writer who's written a lot on this. But what I'm wondering is this. What resources can you recommend for someone who's just trying to find out about this doctrine, just trying to wrap their arms around it? Uh, Maybe they haven't been exposed to it at all in their church, and maybe even at first blush, it sounds sort of to run counter to the scriptures. What are the books that you'd recommend for someone in that kind of situation?
1: That's a good question. I think on the the practical level of the importance of the doctrine— and its implications for pastors, and churches, and individual Christians. Uh, Samuel Renahan's God Without Passions, a Primer, is an excellent resource. It's a brief uh, treatment of the subject. I think it was lectures or sermons he preached at his church that we that we made into book form. It has study questions. It has wonderful quotes. The introduction, or the first chapter, not sure which one, I think it's worth the price of the book because he talks about uh, theological method and and hermeneutical uh, principles, which is, um, you know, those are very important issues when it comes to everything, but especially the doctrine of God. So that that one's good. That's a a beginner's level. And then an intermediate level would be Sam Renahan edited another book called God Without Passions, a Reader. And basically that book, Uh, which, by the way, has a foreword by Carl Truman, Uh, that book is uh, full of quotations and just brief explanations of Reformation and post-Reformation theologians showing the continuity of thought uh, between those two and just what they intended by the the phrase, uh, by the term passions. Again, the introduction in that book by Sam, I think, is worth the price of the book. A little more technical would be James Dolezal's article, Still Impassible, Confessing God Without Passions. That's in the journal uh, of the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies, the 2014 issue. Um, And then on the advanced level would would be uh, the book I I helped put together, Confessing the Impassible God, the Biblical, Classical, and Confessional Doctrine of Divine Impassibility. And then I think it's okay to recommend uh, a Roman Catholic uh, not, not because he's Roman Catholic, but because I think this is a very helpful article uh, Over at uh, the First Things website um, They have an article, a 2001 article by Thomas Wayne Andy Called Does God Suffer? Now he has a book of the same title The article is very helpful, readable And then uh, older writers, I, I would say William Perkins, uh, A Golden Chain And William Ames, The Marrow of Theology Uh, and pretty much any reformed author prior to the 19th century. And I say prior to the 19th century because, sadly, a shift took place, I think, as a result of the Enlightenment, that caused some good men to jettison uh, older, well-established theological method and terms and phrases and concepts of the reformed tradition. Uh, You know, sadly, you can see this in in both Hodge and Warfield unfortunately. So those are a few things I could recommend.
0: Well, I appreciate those recommendations. I would second all of them. Uh, they are all very, very fine works. And, and thanks so much for, for really taking us into the deep end of the theological pool. It, this is a necessary doctrine. This is something that Christians need to think about. And, and in the Bible uh, presses them to think about, and thank you for being our guide to, to all of that today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, and hopefully it will be helpful to some.
0: You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening... We'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.